All right, let's go to Romans 13. Um, yeah, uh, hopefully you have an outline and picked up a bulletin, and there's all kinds of information in the bulletin concerning the events that are happening in our church that are taking place over the next few weeks. Uh, so again, guys, just a reminder that concerning our event at 4 o'clock today, I will send out a one call, so please do not put your phone on vibrate and then not get the call and come to the church and say, I didn't tell you so. All right, so by 2 o'clock, I will send out a uh, one call. If you don't hear the, a one call, it's on for 4 o'clock. If you hear a one call, we're going to postpone it. Uh, we'll just wait and see what the weather does. So let's go on. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold, on, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do, good, to do you good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of our conscience. This also is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time in governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Can everybody groan right there? If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, we have been in Romans chapter 12 for quite some time, and I find it very interesting um, that Paul is kind of concluding the last section of Romans chapter 12, talking about love, talking about our relationships with each other. How do we love each other in practical ways, whether it's a church member, it's a family member, it's a spouse, it's a child, a grandchild, and how do we even respond and love our enemies is what we dealt with last week. I mean, how, how are we going to respond to them who, who do something against us, are we just going to retaliate, like you push against me, I'm going to push back against you, or can we respond in a way that is different, in a way that is, is loving? And so Paul concluded by saying, listen, we have to leave room for God's vengeance, right? So if something is done to you by someone else, you may not have any closure in this lifetime, but, but God will ultimately settle the book's on everybody who has suffered some kind of injustice in life. And then he's going to talk in the latter half of chapter 13 about love. I just find it highly unusual that Paul would drop in between these love sections talking about government, <laughs> of all things. Government is not known for being loving, right, or being kind. So why would Paul do that? Well, to give you kind of a backdrop against what we're going to look at this morning, I think there are three reasons why all of a sudden he jumps in talking about submitting to authority that's over us, and so there's, there's different authorities over us, but in this particular subject matter, he, he is talking about a, a government, a governing body that is over us. So the first reason why I think he 
um, drops this in here is it's Paul's application and instructions on how we are to leave uh, vengeance in God's hands. If you back up in chapter 12 and verse 17, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says, says the Lord. And so Paul is saying our natural instinct, if somebody hurts us, is to hurt them back. If somebody takes revenge against us, we want to seek revenge against them. And he's saying, now let's leave this in the hands of God. And this is, is the entity that God has put into place to seek out justice when you have, you have suffered injustice. For example, if somebody commits a crime against you, uh, they're going to have to go to court, right? And so there might be a sentence. They might spend time in jail or, or they might spend time in community service or whatever it is that the judgment that is rendered against them. And so in Paul's day and time, this is obviously very important because uh, the entities, the government that was over him and over the church of Jesus Christ was a very cruel and very rugged uh, kind of government in that um, yeah, they, they were usually the ones who were executing vengeance rather than they, Paul being on the receiving end. And so he says, in one sense, governments stand in for God and execute judgment on his behalf. You notice he calls the government a servant, a servant of the Lord. The Lord has given them authority to be his servant to render justice where justice is needed. The second reason is the first century church one of the primary places they would have to have uh, overcome evil with good, again, would be in relationship to the governing authorities in their day and time. Paul says to overcome evil with good, bless those who curse you. Well, many people who were inflicting evil on the Christians and were cursing them were the governing authorities. And the way that they were to overcome them, Paul says, is by submitting, respecting, honoring, and even, yes, obeying the authorities placed over them, although that authority did not deserve it. Now, catch this, because it's very important about what Paul's going to unpack. God doesn't say that the governing authority may necessarily have earned your respect or have earned your honor, but we are to submit to them with honor and respect regardless of, of how corrupt they might be. Because the governing authorities in Paul's day were extremely, this is the Roman Empire, they were extremely cruel and corrupt. And Paul says, but we're going to honor, we're going to respect, because God's the one who has set them into place. The third reason is that, remember, Paul's desire was always to go to Rome and take the gospel to Rome. And I think when Paul sent this letter, he was hoping that Caesar or at least some official authority representing Caesar would read the letter so that when Paul got into Rome, Caesar would know, I have not come to Rome as a follower of Jesus Christ to overthrow the government. Because there were many Jewish um, sects, S-E-C-T-S, um, who had in mind to do just that. They were known as zealots. And so the zealots 
were wanting to overthrow the Roman government and establish God's kingdom's government uh, when the time was right. And so they're just kind of waiting their turn for that to happen. And so remember, one of Jesus' original disciples was a zealot. Simon the zealot is the way he is listed. And so Paul says, in essence, like, I'm not coming into Rome to cause trouble, to push back against the government, but I am coming to Rome to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to bring hope into the lives of hopeless people. And so Paul wrote, when he wrote these words, none of the authorities that he's speaking of here for us to honor, respect, and submit to, not one of those authorities were Christian. Not one of them. At best, they were unfriendly. At worst, they were actively hostile. There were three Roman Caesars that Paul fell under the authority of. There was uh, Caligula, Caligula, and uh, then after him was Claudius, and then Nero. Now let me just read their resume for a second. Caligula, his, he had his mother and brother killed so that they could not become rivals to the, Rome, to the throne. Um, he openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He frequently cross-dressed and went out into public. He installed his favorite horse as a senator and then later bumped him up to pro-council. He got mad once. <laughs> he got mad at the weather, so he raged war against the Roman god of the, of the weather, Neptune. He sent his soldiers out to whip the waves and then collect seashells as though it's plunder from war brought back into his kingdom. During the gladiatorial games, which were cruel enough, he would randomly pick people out of the audience and throw them into the arena for the pleasure of watching them lose their lives either to a gladiator or to the wild animals that were set loose upon them. This is the kind of guy he was. And then he's followed by Claudius, who was uh, a little less crazy, but every bit as cruel. And then Nero's mom killed Claudius in his sleep so that Nero could replace him. Now, it turns out that Nero was one of the cruelest, most insensitive, most sadistic Christian killers of all time. It is uh, believed that it was Nero who set Rome on fire, and he stood on his balcony strumming a harp like some kind of poetic gesture, and then he blamed the Christians for the fire, for setting the fire and as a result of that, he ramped up his persecution against the body of Christ tenfold. He would often use as torches to light his parties, his festive parties in his garden. He would use Christians strung on a pole and set on fire. At another time, he got mad at his pregnant wife and kicked her to death. He felt bad about it later on. So he found a young man who looked a lot like his wife, had him castrated, and called him his wife and married him. And spent the rest of his life with her or him. Whatever pronouns he wanted to use. These are the kinds of people that Paul has in mind when he's saying these words. Now, that's really hard. Now, we have a government we may disagree with on many different issues. But we don't have a government like that. There are governments in certain countries across our world that still persecute people in extreme ways. And yet the word of God is true for us and it is also true for them. So I want to talk a minute about the authority of the government, the administration of the government, 
and the acknowledgement of the government, the authority of the government. Listen, if people disagree with a leader, not only do they feel they have an obligation to dishonor and disrespect that person, they feel like they have an obligation they need to actually confront them. It's like a, an, a license to degenerate and to attack that leader. And so Paul's writing to the church at Jesus Christ. Remember, he's talking about love. He's talking about relationships. How do we lovingly have a relationship with a government or government officials who we may vehemently disagree with, but we still honor the office, we still respect the office, we still pray for the person. We don't tag things like, well, that's not my president. That should never come off the lips of a believer. We are instructed in Scripture otherwise that we are to pray for them, and we are to pray for them diligently, even though we may disagree deeply with them. And so these are, this is what Paul is addressing, and he says we are to submit to that authority. And here's the kind of the tagline for today. You honor the Lord by submitting to those who are over you. But what if I refuse to submit to them? Now I'm dishonoring the Lord, and both have consequences. So this is difficult for us, right? If I, I disagree with somebody and I really don't like their policies, and I don't like their character, how do I continue to honor and respect them by submitting to them, and in thus submitting to them, I'm actually honoring the Lord. And the word submit is a military term, means to align yourself under that authority that is over you. Now, those of you guys have served in the, in the military, you know at boot camp, one of the things they drilled into you that you will surrender and submit to the authority that is over you. You will not question your commander or his orders, right? And so this is kind of what Paul is saying. There, in Scripture, God has placed a, a, a succession of submitting to authority over us. Obviously, God is our ultimate authority, right? He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. He created you and I. And so what God has designed his kingdom to do is to help us to self-govern, right? That I submit and surrender myself under the authority of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God who helps craft and form my mind and my nature into Christ's likeness because it naturally is rebellious on the inside. So when I learn how to self-govern, and then the next level of authority over us were our parents, right? Our family, and you know as well as I do, we, we did okay somewhat growing up, submitting to the authority of our parents. They were bigger than we were, and we couldn't say no, or if we did say no, they could put us in timeout or spank us or whatever. But then when you got to become a teenager, it's like, well, I'm, I'm bigger than you, and I, I've, you know, I've got all these thoughts, and mom and dad are stupid, and I'm not going to listen to you, and I don't want to follow you, and we just kind of rebel against them. The next level of authority is that of the church as we surrender to self uh, governing authority and the Holy Spirit of God, and we, we surrender and honor our parents and our father and mothers, and then you know, we honor the authority the church has given uh, by God to, to help us to grow in our relationship. And then above that is civil authorities, right? Can be government, can be local government, can be um, you know, national government, there are employers, you know, they are the authority over you if you work for somebody. 
you know, they're the boss, you're not the boss, they're the owner, you're not the owner, and therefore I'm to submit to what it is they are asking me to do, unless they're asking me to do something that violates Scripture. So God's authority, in essence, is both external and internal. Both external and internal. External in that, you know, parents, pastors, police officers, civil governments, internal, the presence, the power, and the person of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, you know, God says that as the Holy Spirit resides within us, there's this battle that's going on inside of us. It's the flesh versus the spirit, my old way of life, my old rebellious lifestyle. And so when God says, turn right, I want to turn left. And the question is, am I going to follow what the Lord says or I'm going to follow what the flesh says? And might be based on, you know, the flesh is very powerful because it, it elicits feelings inside of us. And it's like, but I don't, I don't feel like I, I want to do that, God. I just want to do my thing. I'm tired of doing your thing. I want to do my thing just like we used to do with our parents. I, I'm tired of following the rules in this house. I just can't wait until I get it out of the house and be my own boss and make my own rules. Amen. Right. <laughs> until you have to grow up and get a job and pay bills and, you know, the whole nine yards, right? Yeah, so, so this is a struggle that goes on inside of us, and so God is teaching us from the very foundation of our walk with him what it means to, to live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit because the flesh is, has this predisposition towards sin and rebellion, and so uh, we have the same tendency against external authorities over us. Our natural instinct is to rebel, to reject, to to want to do our own thing and go our own way. So the question is, uh, what authority are you over and what authority are you under? Like, for example, if you're an employer, you you have authority over your employees. If you're an employee, uh, you are under the authority of somebody else. And so you can just go down through your life. I mean, if you're a coach, a teacher, an employer... You have a, you're, in, you're in authority. If you are a student or a player or employee, you're under authority. All of us are under or over authority. And so when you're over somebody in authority, that is a huge responsibility because we will all give an account. Like as a pastor of the church, I, I am in authority over you, given to me by God. But the downside of that is I have to give an account to the Lord for the way that I have led you and fed you and cared for you, and it's something I don't take lightly because i got to stand with Jesus and tell, explain why I've done what I've done. So if you look in Hebrews chapter 13, it says it does you no good to not to rebel against the authority over you, and certainly it reminds me that you have to give an account for, for what it is that you're doing. And so rightly relating to authority is so, so important in our lives, but it doesn't come natural, right? The flesh fights against it. You tell me to go right, I want to go left. Tell me not to do that, that's exactly what I want to do. You fight this, you struggle with this when you have kids, you fight this and struggle with this as an employee sometimes. You think your boss is an idiot, he doesn't get it, you could do a better job and you could do it, uh, you know, there's a better way to do it, and so on and so forth. And so... Uh, when we don't want to be under authority and we want to say, well, you know what? I'm going to tell you what to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. We call that America. 
Is that, is that not the theme of our society? You will not tell me what to do. I will tell you what to do. And you will not have any authority over me. I want to live independent of you until you need something. And so sin and rebellion are that default mechanism. And our first instinct is to disagree, to push back on authority. And so Paul uh, already warned us not to conform what? To the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so one of the first steps in mind renewal is my approach to authority that is over me. All right? So, for example, when I started working in construction, when I was 16 years old, I worked on my dad's job. My dad was superintendent of the job. He was the boss. He was the head honcho. He was the guy. All right? So somebody comes in, you know, it's a lunchtime. I'm 16 years old, and, and I was just a laborer, so I worked for his labor foreman. I didn't actually work for my dad, per se. I mean, he had two labor foremans. I worked for one of them. And, you know, he's the one I had to answer to. And, and so somebody come in and says, well, you know, one of the guys that worked another labor, he goes, well, you got it made because, you know, your dad, you can't get fired. <laughs> you want to bet? <laughs> so when I was older and I was working as a pipe fitter, again, I was working on my dad's job. And so, you know, I am the foreman. I, am the, I have people who are under me. And... Um, so I was running a backhoe because I, we were laying underground pipe, and I just I run the backhoe, and, and my dad went into, you know, uh, to the porta potty and I just set the bucket right in front of the door of the porta potty so he couldn't get out. And uh, let's just say that was probably the closest I came to being fired by my father uh, when I finally let him out of there. So the, the point is, we all have authority over us, and so the question is, how are we going to respond? What is the loving thing to do? What's the loving response to those who are in authority, whether it's good authority or even a, an evil system? Listen, I, I know what people say. It was like, well, you know, it would be so much easier to follow the authority of the government if I thought the government was doing anything good, right? If I agreed with them, about what they're doing, how they're handling money, and how, what they're spending money on, then, you know, I could, I could put myself, if we just had a perfect government, hello, there is no perfect government because it's run by imperfect people, right? The only time we had a perfect government here on earth is when God created the heavens and the earth, and he formed and fashioned the, this planet for humanity, Adam and Eve are in the garden, God gave them what? authority over his creation and his creation was perfect Adam and Eve were perfect until they chose to sin and once they sin everything became imperfect and it's never been right since and until God comes back to make that which is imperfect perfect once again there ain't never going to be a perfect government I know people say, well, let's just clear the decks and start all over again. Well, let's say you instituted a perfect government, system of governance. You put it in the hands of imperfect people. We'll just mess it up. That's a good place for an amen. You say, well, it should be better. Well, it was, and then we ruined it. So the question people ask is, is there ever a time when we can push back on the government authority over us. And there is. It's called civil disobedience. We see this in Scripture. And what that simply means is, if the government commands you to do something that God forbids, 
or if the government forbids you to do something that God commands, you have grounds for civil disobedience. And we have a lot of different examples of that in the Scripture. All the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when the Pharaoh over Egypt, because the Israelites were getting so large and so many, you know, there were so many of them, they feared being overcome. Uh, Pharaoh sent out the decree, every male that is born, he's to be drowned in the river Nile. And so the, um, those who were the midwives for the Hebrew children were instructed by the Pharaoh himself to drown every male child that is born. Well, somebody pushed back on that. Her name was Jochebed. Guess who Jochebed saved? Her son. Who's her son? Moses. And so she, Moses was saved because she refused and acted in civil disobedience. Or think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel in chapter 3 when King Nebuchadnezzar erected his golden statue and it required everyone to bow and to worship to it whenever the horn sounded. And they said, we will not bow to that to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, we bow to only one God, and in civil disobedience, they refuse to do it, and as a result, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. It is heated up seven times normal, and yet there in the midst of it, as King Nebuchadnezzar looks down into the fiery furnace, he sees a fourth person. It is Christ himself in that fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they come out unscathed. Or Daniel, who under King Darius decreed you, no one for the next 30 days is allowed to pray to any god except Darius. Because remember, they oftentimes consider themselves to be deity. And Daniel says, I'm not doing that. And he would, throw, he would go to his, his room. He would throw open his window so everybody could hear him. As he did three times a day, he would pray. And as a result, he landed himself in a lion's den. We all know the outcome of that. God shuts the mouths of the lions. Or Peter and John, who are appearing before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, because they're talking and preaching about Jesus, and they're healing people, and God's using them in incredible ways. And they say, listen, you guys got to stop this. And so they had them whipped, and they said, you got to stop talking about Jesus. You cannot keep talking about Jesus. And they said, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? No way. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen, what we have heard, and what we've experienced. We will not stop. And so it's important that we understand that authority comes from God in the practical sense. There are times in which we are allowed to do civil disobedience. But here comes a mysterious thing. It says that everyone, every government entity that is in place has been put in place by God himself. Well, there's some very evil government entities, are there not? So let's look at Daniel for a moment, because when Daniel was in the midst of, for example, serving under King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar was an extremely cruel and vile king. The Babylonians were ruthless. They had been used, they, Jeremiah said they were the servants of God used to discipline God's people because of their idolatry. But yet, Daniel maintained his integrity and his character, serving his God while following what the king had him to do as long as it was not a command that God says, hey, I forbid you to do this, or this is what I command you to do. He, he, he could practice civil disobedience, but he served under the authority of a vicious ruler over him by submitting to him and, and honoring him and respecting him. And the end result was that
that King Nebuchadnezzar came to faith in the one true God of Daniel. See, you never know how you might be impacting the life of somebody that you are honoring and submitting to and how God might use your life in order to do that. There are a lot of Christians in governments around the world. And God uses them to bring something to the table and something into the hearts and lives of those who are rulers over us that would not happen any other way. And so we pray for them. And so that's the authority of the government. And then the administration of the government is really fourfold. He says that government punishes evil. He said in verse 2, Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror to those who do right, but those who do wrong. Do you not want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then what is right, and he will commend you. In verse 4, in the latter part of that, he talks about the sword, that the, the, the authority over you. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. In other words, God has set into place uh, governing authorities that are supposed to restrain evil. Right. So one of the reasons why we have police officers is what? To maintain order where there would be chaos without them. Right. So if you withdraw all the police officers out of the Columbus Police Department, what would happen as a result? The anarchy, right? People are going to do whatever they want to do. There are a lot of people who have nothing but an evil intentions in their hearts, so they're going to rob places, loot places, commit crimes, because there's no deterrent. There's no one holding them accountable for their actions. And so, you know, we, we tried that in various uh, large cities across the United States, and it didn't work very well. Let's defund all the police officers, and uh, let's put in a system that's better. Let's have community services where community people go and they deal with the issues, well, that just doesn't work well. And so one of the reasons why God has given us government entities, both on the local and the national level, is to help push back evil. Why do you need to push back evil? Because evil, listen, evil will never stop pushing until everyone is dead. Why? Because it is a demonic entity. And it is Satan's goal, and his drive, is that he would push evil as far as he possibly can. One of the reasons why we as followers of Jesus Christ, who are representatives of the kingdom of God and the righteousness of Christ, is that we push back against evil. We, we become the conscience of our country to say, listen, this is not right. This is evil. We should not be participating in this. And so, being a good citizen of the state, we're not agreeing with the state necessarily, but we are submitting to the Lord and seeking to earn the freedom to worship our God and seeking positions of influence which are against our God. And so, it doesn't reach, evil doesn't reach a point where it inflicts enough pain to stop unless somebody is pushing back against that evil. Now, when this kingdom of God here on earth comes to its climax, one of the things that happens, the Bible says that God removes the restrainer of evil, which is the Holy Spirit, but also he's the restrainers that push back against evil, the governments will collapse, it'll become a one world government, 
who will be either the pusher or the restrainer of evil, and the decision will be up to them. And now you've pulled out the Spirit of God who pushes back against evil. I just want you to know that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I are keenly aware that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power of the air, that Satan and his demonic beings are always pushing the agenda of evil in our world. And so our government authority, our civil authority, exists to restrain vice. The church exists to promote virtue. Government laws are fairly broad-based. God's laws are very narrow. For example, government says don't kill anyone. Jesus said, I don't even want you to assault them with your words. If you say raka, which is a very derogatory term, if you have hatred in your heart, you've already committed murder in your heart. The government says, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, I don't even want you to look upon someone with lust because in your mind it is adultery already. So the expectation for God's people are far more specific and narrow because the moral capacity of a human being with the Holy Spirit is significantly different than a fallen person without the Holy Spirit. So he says, beware of the state and the sword. You know the first person to have a sword in the Bible? Remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned against God and God established an angel outside the Garden of Eden and there was an angel with a sword in his hand protecting Adam and Eve from the tree of life? so that they will not remain in their eternal state of fallenness. The last person who carries a sword into the world is the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. The sword is is an instrument of justice. It is an instrument of judgment. And so in the middle, God hands out swords to enact justice, to deal with sin, and to protect the sanctity of human life. What the sword represents is the just taking of human life. But what about the commandment you should not kill? In the language of the Hebrew, there are several words that are used for kill or murder, right? So the commandment of the great Ten Commandments is that you shall not murder someone. That is murdering an innocent person, killing them in cold blood. But if a person is a murderer and they uh, committed such heinous crimes, then there is a just killing or a just taking in their life so that justice is of God is served through his entity, the government. Now, in America, we use capital punishment to that degree very sparingly. And truthfully, it it probably should be that way. But there are some who hold that human life should never be taken under any circumstance for any condition, and that would be a person who's called a pacifist. And so there's also a spiritual sword that we are reminded of in Scripture That we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we're to take the Word of God and we allow the Word of God to renew our minds. And we're to take every thought captive into obedience of Christ. Why? So when we gather here, for example, on Sunday mornings, do you realize that we're in the midst of a war? There are spiritual entities, fallen entities, Satan and his demonic beings who are warring against your mind, that's warring against your spirit, that's warring against your flesh. Why? Because he wants you to follow him. He wants you to follow the flesh rather than the spirit. And so we have principalities and powers who are at war. So when we open up the word of God, we go deeper into the enemy territory where we 
you know, we, we return fire to him as we're receiving. So, for example, when, I, you know, when I'm preaching, it, I, it's exhausting. And the reason why it's exhausting is because I know that I am in this unseen realm and I'm opening up God's word and we're talking about God's word and we're asking the Holy Spirit to do a work inside of us that light would penetrate our darkness and truth would refute our lives and, and, and the truth would set the captives free in Jesus Christ. And there's a war that's going on here and God is warring on our behalf and we're warring on our behalf and on behalf of those who have not know Christ yet, and this war that when you engage inside, I'm going to tell you, it is exhausting if you truly engage. And so, we too brandish a sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, because it is the Word of God and the Word of God alone that can penetrate darkness and refute the lies and set the captives free. Number two, government promotes good. He says in verse four, the first part of that, he is God's servant to do you good. And so um, our governments, you know, can bring peace and prosperity, help us live more peaceable lives. Obviously, our military protects our country from, uh, you know, invasion of foreign countries that would want to do us harm. And so, honestly, uh, the gospel can advance through peace and prosperity so that there are two you know, that can bless and promote good. And so, in some ways, government promotes good. In other ways, you, you might think, well, I don't know that I, I see much good, but there's probably more good there. A lot of people are helped through uh, our government agencies, right? The poor are helped, and those who are in need of things they cannot afford on their own, and they need help. And, and uh, you know, if the church isn't going to rise up and help people, then we, we become more reliant upon the government to do that. But government, thirdly, prompts our conscience. He says in, in verse 5, he talks about this. He says, therefore, it's necessary to submit to authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of a conscience. So, for example, when you're speeding and a police officer gives you the blue light special and you pull over and he pulls out the old ticket book and starts writing you a ticket, it kind of like challenges your conscience, right? Oh, I didn't realize I was going 85 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. Or I didn't realize I was speeding through this area that is a you know, construction site now that the fines are double uh, for speeding in this particular area. Not that I've ever done that. Um, maybe a couple years ago. Uh, and trust me, uh, the fines are double. Um, but he says, for the sake of the conscience, right? I want a clear conscience. Why do I pay my taxes that I owe? Because I want to have a clear conscience. I don't want to lie, and then my conscience bother me. You know, Greg, you lied on your taxes. Or why do I pay that ticket? Because, you know, you can appeal it. You can go to take it to court, but you want your conscience to be clear. And so one of the reasons why God has governing authorities over us is to challenge our conscience. And so when we obey the laws of the land, um, you're actually training your conscience to help you in other areas of your life. Because, listen, if you start violating your conscience over here, it's just a matter of time before you start violating your conscience over here and over here and over here. And that is a downward slide, and you really don't want to go there. So you may not like paying taxes any more than I do. But the fact of the matter is, we are taxed. Why are we taxed? Well, newsflash, the only way government gets its money is from you. 
All right, uh, they don't make money. Well, they can print money, uh, but they they don't. You know, they're not a for-profit entity. Right? They take money from us through taxes, and God says when we pay what it, we owe, we follow the laws of the land. It's not that you don't take your deductions that you're able to take, but when we follow the laws of the land, it helps to keep our conscience in check, and government passes taxes. That's the last one. Notice he calls them ministers uh, in verse 6. The ministers, you know, are, are in the temple. They were the ones who were the spiritual Servants. So again, government does not create wealth. They are not a business. Otherwise, our government wouldn't last 30 seconds. Because every business they ever try to undertake, they destroy it in a matter of time. So here's the thing. They get their money from you, so that means the government is never incentivized to do what? To be good stewards of the money they get. They're not like a business owner under capitalism. Like in capitalism, if I open up the business, the only reason way my business survives is if you come and buy things from me, all right? Otherwise, I'm going to shrivel up and die on the vine. Our government's not that way. They don't have to be good stewards because if they want more money, they just extract it out of us. This is why God himself said to the nation of Israel, you really don't want a king to be over you when they were crying for a king because he says they're going to extract taxes out of you to the nth degree. And that's just what governments do. And so we come as followers of Christ. I mean, did Jesus' parents pay taxes? Yeah, absolutely they did. That's why they had to go to Bethlehem to register the census because the Roman government wanted to make sure they got their taxes out of them. Did Jesus pay taxes? Absolutely he did. He says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, unto God what is God's. And so this brings us to the acknowledgement of government, and that is, he says, we are to respect and we are to honor you notice there's a difference between taxes and, and revenue. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, taxes are, are personal tax, like income tax, property tax. Uh, revenue would be th generic things like sales tax. The idea is simply if you owe somebody, you pay them. And you respect those who are owed respect, and you owe, bring honor to those who are owed honor. Now, I close with this, an ultimate question here. What if, what if I have been hurt deeply by an authority that is over me? Whether it be the government, uh, national, local, what if a police officer uh, mistreated me? For example, I had a, a, a woman in my church in Elyria, um, who was extremely attractive. She was pulled over by a police officer, and he cuffed her for no reason and gave her a body search, and you get the gist. All right, so what if you've been violated by an authority over you? Maybe you were violated by a pastor or someone else, a family member. How do we, how do we bridge that gap when we've been so violated by an authority over us that we would say to the Lord, yes, I'm going to honor, I'm going to respect uh, uh, other authorities over me. You have to keep in mind that not one authority doesn't represent all the authorities. Right? Somebody may have violated you using, leveraging, excuse me, their authority against you in a very cruel way. And I'm sorry about that. 
and probably all of us at some point in our lives have had that violation, and we have to deal with that, and that's a whole other message. But I just don't want you to look at all authority in a negative way because of that one authority who violated you in such a way. And so think about Daniel. I'm sure that there is a lot about King Nebuchadnezzar that he struggled with, um, agreeing with or liking or being violated by Nebuchadnezzar and the authority he held over him. But when it was all said and done, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most wicked kings to live, violence perpetuated on, his, on the people he, that were under him, became a believer in the one true God. And sometimes those in authority, we think, well, the, especially those who have violated you, we think to ourselves, I can't wait until they get what they deserve. And Paul would challenge us and say, that's true. They will get what they deserve ultimately because God's the ultimate judge of all things. But the loving thing to do is what Jesus said to do and challenged us. He says, love your enemies. Pray for them. Do good towards them. Now, if you were raped or there was some other kind of violation like that, that doesn't mean you go up and buy them gifts. But it does mean that I'm willing to pray that somehow, some way, God would get a hold of them in such a way that they would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and experience the same amazing grace of God that I've experienced in my life. That is hard. It's not natural. It's difficult. And they may never come to faith in Christ, but what if they do? Would you be let down? Would you say, oh, they're never going to get what they deserve. Or would you celebrate? That depends. If I'm thinking through my flesh or through the Spirit of God. Those scenarios are very much a real part of our lives on all different kinds of levels. And so if we're really going to love as Jesus loved, then we follow what Jesus has asked us to do. Bow our heads. Father, I, I, I pray this morning for, for everyone here who has been violated in some form or fashion in their lives and by authorities that were over them and took advantage of them and God, you know the hurt, you know the pain, you know the struggle of forgiveness, you know the struggle of being willing to trust again. Uh, God, there's just so much beneath the surface that they are struggling with in their lives. But God, I also, I also know that you have the power to heal, you have the power to deliver um, from those circumstances and situations in our lives that that were beyond our control, and perhaps, and, and God, just that you can bring healing where there is just hurt and pain, and, and that hurt and pain is, 
has kept them chained to the past and chained to that person or that entity. And God, you want to set the captives free is what you told us. And so Lord, I pray for freedom today. I pray for freedom for someone this morning that has been encapsulated and have just been um, chained to and tied to this event in their life. And they just can't get past it. They can't get beyond it. God, I pray for a working of the Holy Spirit here this morning um, that is miraculous, that is um, earth-shattering, that moves mountains here this morning in someone's life to allow them to experience, maybe for the first time in a long, long time, what it means to be free from this event in their life. That's just been holding them down and holding them back. God, we know that no matter what we've encountered in our lives, Father, we weren't alone. God, you see all things. You know all things. Lord, we know that that you're the one who, who will bring justice where justice is needed and God, that ultimately you have the say in all things. But Lord, I do pray. My heart just goes out and I do pray for those who are struggling right now. So may the Holy Spirit move in this place in a very real and a very powerful way that would set the captives free. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask and we pray these things. All God's people say, amen, amen. Let's stand together as we close in this time of song. Um, and as you're singing and as you're worshiping the Lord, just just pray the Holy Spirit, just meet you where you are, bring hope and healing and restoration back into your spirit, into your soul, where there has been hurt and devastation and destructiveness. The evil one does not want you to be set free, but God does. But it all starts with a submitting and a surrendering, a fresh and anew to the Spirit of God and asking Him to do what only He can do. And you do what you can do by surrendering and submitting to Him. And let's see what God can do in your life.